Thank you guys for listening to the George Reister podcast. This podcast is about faith, family, fatherhood, food, friendship, and sports. We have in-depth conversations with some of your best people. If you guys have any questions, comments, anything, send it to imad, I-M-M-A-D, at unafraidshow.com. We will get to it. Guest ideas who you guys want to see on as well. Make sure you guys share the feed, tell a friend about the George Rester podcast, and leave a five-star rating. Let's get to the show. And we got my man Aaron Ventress in the house from the from the athletic. <laughs> he covers the Oregon Ducks, Seattle Seahawks. And uh yeah, he used to be of NBC Northwest. And he is in And the Oregonian. Don't forget the Oregonian. And I forget that and Pacific <laughs> University. Uh and on and as you guys know in the George Reister podcast, so we're focusing on the things that I care about the most and hopefully that you guys enjoy all of these interviews. So Aaron, I I, I want to get to, I would say Aaron Fentress, not, not just the sports reporter, not just the analyst, but Aaron Fentress, the man. I want to talk about Aaron Fentress, the, the man, because everybody knows all the stuff that you write. Everybody knows all of this, but you know, but you are a family man first. You are a family man above all this writing, above the Ducks, above the Seattle Seahawks, above the Athletic, above NBC North Northwest, all of that. So you're on the road a lot. You're writing, you're busy, all, all of these things. Like, where does your family kind of fit in in terms of like your peace and your like what what does your family add to you and your career? Well, I have, <clears throat> I have two teenagers, 15 year old daughter and a 13 year old son. And so there's not much peace. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, uh, no, I, I love my family. I love my kids. Um, I'm the type of dad who my goal is to make my kids laugh every day. Um, do something silly, say something funny, just make them crack up. Our dinner times are spent me trying to make everyone laugh. And my wife was always like, don't make Peyton laugh because he'll have food in his mouth. And he'll, just, he'll almost choke. <laughs> he's 13. It's, he's gotten better right now. But he was like, when he was little, he'd like take a bite of a carrot or something. I'd make him laugh. He'd be like, stop, stop. Um, so I love being around them. My daughter's in the basketball. So we do a lot of basketball together. My son's in the baseball. So we do a lot of baseball together. And he and I play Madden and NBA 2K and stuff. So no, I, I love being around them. Uh, dreading the day when they'll both be gone, um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's fun being a parent. I enjoy see, it a lot. See, I did. I, nobody told me that being a parent was going to be this difficult, though. Nobody told me. I mean, like <clears throat> your like your parents kind of say it because my, my 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 parents been together almost forty years. Been married almost forty mm. years. So, like they they uh, tell you, but you don't under uh, understand. And everybody a- acts like the. You know, when when they have babies, all of this, the sleepless nights and, you know, the terrible twos, all of these things, they, they act like that that's the hard part. But for me, no, no, no. It's been the teenage part that is the most difficult yeah. part. Because so we have a blended family. Oldest daughter, 19, down to we have a, a eight-month-old infant. And yes, so 19, 19, (laughs) who is a sophomore at LMU, we have 13 year old boy, 
uh, nine-year-old daughter, eight-year-old son, and then the infant. And so I came into my my stepdaughter's life when she was 12 years old. And just, oh my Lord, just seeing how they changed from 12 to 13. And mm-hmm. now seeing our oldest son at 13. It, like, it is so much more like you, you don't, you're, you're no longer their most important, their most, their biggest influence in their, in their life. It's their friends, yep. TV, yep. whatever that they think is cool. And it, for me, some, sometimes it's so frustrating because I've had to deal, you know, differently with how I talk to them, how I re- relate to them. Like what, what has been your experience? Cause, cause, cause I noticed you have an older son too, who's, who's 30. So you've been through that part, but when you're 15, 13 year old, like, how does that, how do you relate to them? How do you talk to teenagers in this social media age? All of that. <clears throat> well, my 30 year old son, Isaiah, and my 13 year old boy, Peyton, super easy kids. I mean, I can't, Peyton was, Peyton is so easy. He, he, he does whatever we ask him to do. He never talks back. He is just unbelievable. And my older son, Isaiah, he was the same way. Like he would ask me once for something, can I get this? I'd go, no. And he'd go, oh, please. I remember he's little, he'd say, oh, please. I go, sorry, we can't get it. He's like, okay. But my daughter is the exact opposite. <laughs> Since age zero. So she came out the womb tripping, yo. I mean, it's she's... And my wife always says, dude, she's the female version of you. She likes to argue. She always thinks she's right. She always has a comeback. And I'm like, I'm not like that. She's like, yes, you are. Fool, do you watch yourself on TV? <laughs> but, so she and I just go at it. And one of the things I've had to learn, obviously, with kids, especially the tween years and even teenage years, is that logic escapes them. Like, logic doesn't matter. It's fight or flight. It's what they want, what they think, what they feel. And so I just have to step back sometimes. Sometimes I just walk away because it's just impossible. I'm going to give you one quick story about something that happened recently. So my wife tells my daughter, do not open the washer while it's going under any circumstances because it messes up the cycle and then water sometimes will spill out onto the ground, onto the floor. And so my daughter's looking for her basketball jersey and she can't find it. And so what does she do? She thinks, and my wife says, and probably in the wash. So she goes and she opens up the wash. And my wife was like, why in the hell would you open it? We told you not to. She's like, she's like, she's like, well, I couldn't find it. And my, my wife was like, but we told you not to do that because it puts water all over the place. She's like, well, I didn't know that. And I'm like, it doesn't matter why you, what you did or didn't know. She told you not to do it. Yeah, but I didn't know it would make a mess. I'm like, but that's not the point. And then I noticed. <laughs> right. And then, right. And then I noticed she has her basketball jersey on. And I go, where'd you find your jersey? She goes, Oh, it's in my basketball bag. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm like, that's the first place you're supposed to look. She goes, well, I didn't know it was in there. I go, okay, so let me get this straight. You hadn't even checked your basketball bag for your jersey. So instead you went and opened up the wash that you knew was running and your mom told you not to open. That was logic to you? And that's why my wife said, Aaron, just stop. And I go, okay, I'm walking away from this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, how do you deal with like, that level of logic? It was just crazy. But you have to just... You have to just try and like my mom, my wife always says, we're trying to grow them. We're trying to help them see the error of their ways, not berate them for not being quite developed yet. <laughs> That's that is my wife. It's funny that like the evolution of parenting because because like 
stuff that you used to just get upset about, you want your teenagers to tell you these things. So you have to be kind of chill with how you react to it and just right. talk to them about it because you, because my, my 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 wife did a good job of making me un, uh, understand that our job is to not just correct them, but to teach them to make good decisions. Right. That way, they that way, even if you're not around, they're going to make quality choices when they go to college, when they're at school, when they're in high school, that middle school, they're going to make quality choices. So we need to build good decision makers as opposed to just people who follow orders. hundred percent. And that's why I try, like, that's why I try to reason with her, but like, they just, I mean, their brains aren't developed yet. Right. So sometimes reason just doesn't always work, but that's the thing with my two sons, completely different. I'm not making this a gender thing. I'm just saying a personality thing. I've always been able to reason with them and they, they get it with her. It's what she wants now, how she wants it. And that's that dude, she's ordered us. Like she told us once, don't come pick me up at 1130. Like you said, you're going to from a friend's house. I'm like, why? Because my friend wants to stay longer and we're her ride. And I'm like, well, she needs has her parents come get her. We're not coming to get you late. She goes, no, you guys can just come get me when I tell you to. I'll tell you when to come ah. get me. I'm like, ah. I'm like, what? She's like, I'll just let you know when to come get me. So she wanted me to basically sit around and wait till 2 a.m. when she decided for me to come get her. Like I'm a taxi service. Hell no. And she tried to pull, she tried to pull this when I was on the road with my wife one time. And my wife is like, she has to get her sleep. Like she comes home, if she puts her head down, she's out. She's just she's a sleepaholic, right? And so she wanted my wife to wait until she decided to tell her to come get her because her friend wanted to stay longer and her friend had to have us bring them home. I'm like talking to my daughter on the phone. I'm like, Taryn, mom's gonna come pick you up at 11:30, and that's that. Like, thank you. But that's the reasoning in their mind. They just want what they want, and they don't think about the logistics of everything. Yeah. See, I can't, I'm so happy that that's how you handled that because listen, nobody care about your friend problems. I know. I'm like, the heck your friend come get have your friend's parents come get y'all. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how's that my problem? Exactly. I'm not waiting all night. Listen, I once left my 13 year old at school because he had me waiting too long <laughs> and he had to wait a couple hours for me to come back that way to pick him up. You left him? Oh, yeah, I left him at school. <laughs> First of all, leaving him at school is not really that big of a deal. He, he No, 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 I get that. It's just funny. It is. He, they, <laughs> right, I, right. I mean, like, he goes to a very nice nice school. But I'm not saying yeah. I'm not your taxi service son. Like, I'm doing you a favor. So, I mean, by, by, by picking you up on time instead of – because there's a lot of other kids that have to wait after school for, for hours. But you're fortunate enough that daddy has a job that is flexible and I can schedule my stuff around what you got to do the majority of the time around your practices, around all this stuff. So, but when I get there, you better be ready. Correct. <laughs> like, and, it's, and it's not like I expect you to walk straight out of school. I, I, I pick you up 20 minutes after school is out the way you can maneuver whatever you need to maneuver, talk to whoever you need to talk to, just be where you're supposed to be. And we don't have no problems. And and do you think he's had a problem since? Nope. No, because he got left. Yeah. And, <laughs> and 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 um I think that that's part of the problem with parents now a lot of times is because we do this thing called bulldozer parenting. Like like people talk about tiger parenting, they talk about uh helicopter, helicopter parenting. Bulldozer parenting. 
that's when you knock down all the obstacles for your kid in life mm-hmm. and they don't ever have to run over anything or 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 struggle because you've knocked everything down for them so then what do yep. they have to do when they get in real real life they have no idea how to handle adversity none yep none and it's true man so what do you so what what have what has been like in your life in your career or whatever like some of the things that have been the biggest adversity for you that have made you the man you are today oh man just overcoming the politics of the business i don't know how many times i've had to deal with double standards just flat out managers who lied like i've caught management and lies before and then called them out and had knock them out drag them out debates and arguments with people just just dealing with that kind of stuff and just realizing as you grow older that you just have to look out for yourself you can't trust other people to look out for you because they'll stab you in the back in a nanosecond and i know that might sound kind of dark but it's just true like it's just people are snakish and, and you've had you know i've had to overcome some really bizarre kind of things uh, but i persevered through them and, and it changed my perspective on the world um so that's that's one thing, and then you know dealing with the custody issues with my oldest son and how that went down, you know being a a, a, a father in a, in a in a relationship that went awry, and then having to actually hire an attorney to take you know my kid's mom to court to secure my visitation with them, which was bizarre, and I'll never forget the the uh, in um, our mediation the mediator mediator saying that you guys realize only one percent of these cases work this way that ninety nine percent of the time it's the mom trying to sue the dad for child support and get him to take the kid sometimes. <laughs> so I, I had to deal with that as, as a young, I was like 21. No, like uh, 21 when he was born. So I was 23 when I had to go through all that. Uh, so those are probably the two biggest things. And, and those kind of things, you know, those are things, those are obstacles, you know, and I was raised in a way, man, where I, man, I lived in four different States, uh, 13 different houses. My parents moved all over the place. I was a latchkey kid at six. I knew how to cook. French toast, eggs, and bacon, no lie, by six or seven years old. That's not a lie. Like, I was a do-it-for-yourself kind of kid. My parents were like, do it for yourself. Do it for yourself. But I'm seven. Do it for yourself. (laughs) Uh, So that helped me along the way, though. See, I totally – see, I believe in those things in in terms of just, like, fighting for your kids and all of that because I had to do the same thing. Like, I've had to go to court numerous times. And it's tough because I, so it, it was hard on me at first because I didn't understand initially how deadbeat dads happen. How they're like, I'm like, you, you have a kid. Why don't you want to see him? Why aren't you fighting? All of this stuff. I think that sometimes people, when they don't know how, or they don't have the confidence, they don't believe that something different is going to happen. Because I remember hearing at first, listen, you're you're a dad, you're going to lose everything, they're going to give everything to mom, blah, 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 and all of this stuff. And that was the result I got at first. And then I should have listened to my mom in the first place. She, she was like, George, get a woman lawyer. It's going to help you in this situation. I was like, why? And she couldn't, she, did, she was like, I don't know why this is just what, what my spirit is telling me. This is why you should listen to your mom. And, (laughs) and so is that once you go through all those hard things, like it is like, it weighs on you. 
like it weighed on me at times where I was just like, yo, should I, should I be going through all this or should I just give up and send a check? And, but like, so, so that's what I would think a couple times before I went to sleep, I would wake up the next day, like, hell nah, hell nah, this, this, this is worth fighting for. This is a big deal. And, right. and I think that things have changed a little bit in the court system to where there are so many good and involved fathers that you don't have to just accept the status quo that you can just say, all right, look, look, no, no, no. He's, um, this is what I think is best for him. I have my ducks in a row. You know, I am, I am employed. I, I have a home. I have a stable situation, blah, blah, blah. Um, maybe you should take a look at what's going on over there. So I, I I just always want fathers to really like fight and not give up because I know sometimes it can be hard. And honestly, for me, Aaron, I think being a, a, having a blended family and having, you know, your, your kids go, go, go back and forth half the time is just. Like that's probably one of the most heartbreaking things for for me every week. Mm-hmm. Every week yeah. I'm like slightly heartbroken. It's been going on for 13 years. <laughs> yeah. And I'm and it's still hard. So like w- when does it get easier and like and how is your relationship with uh Isaiah now? Our relationship was always awesome and that's, you know, that's one of that was always my goal. And I had, you know, I had an opportunity when I was young to when I was an intern at the Oregonian, I had an opportunity to look at jobs in Orlando and, and uh, Fort Lauderdale and Syracuse. And I was just like, I can't leave the area. So I was so fortunate to, to stay on at the Oregonian. And then over the years, I've had other opportunities to maybe bail from this market. And I'm just like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm staying here to be a father to my son. And so his relationship and I, we were just always spectacular. We're, we're still BFFs today. We talk all the time, obviously. Um, but my thing was, you know, there's no way I'm not going to, you know, spend as much time with him as humanly possible. Yeah, me and the mom are completely at odds, but that's not going to impact my relationship with my with my kid. That was my thing. Like, there's just no way that's going to happen. Um, and so I just, that was always my goal. And, and everything, I, I spent a lot of money. Like, it was crazy. I remember, like, saying to myself, I'm spending, like, I was, tw- dude, I was 23. I was making, I was a sports clerk at the Oregonian. I was making nine bucks an hour. Um, and I had, a, had another job at a baseball card shop in Hillsborough making seven bucks an hour. That was under the table. So that was like 10 bucks an hour. Right. And uh, I saved up. I saved up my money, man. I saved up three grand to retain an attorney. And uh, I, I took her to court. And I was like, I'm just I just have to get this done because I'm not going to fight with her every time I want to see him. And then just the end of that summer, I got um, a job at the Oregonian. So I started obviously making some decent money then, but I had next to nothing. That's why when I meet young people today and they're like, Oh, I don't have the money for it. I'm like, dude, I made nine, 10 bucks an hour. I, I went to court to secure visitation with my kid. Like your, your kid's only gonna be young once have that relationship with it. Cause they're going to remember, you know, they're going to remember if you weren't there, if you weren't around, um, they're going to always have that negative feeling about you in the back of their mind that where were you? Why didn't you fight for them? Cause they can't do anything about their little kids, you know? Um, so yeah, that was that was a uh, that was the number one motivation in my life, and I'm so glad I did that. And like I said, he and I are are still very very close today. We we talk about sports, we talk about Star Wars, we talk about whatever. He's he's doing very well for himself too. So, what is your greatest 
in 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 your life what what has been your greatest accomplishment so far Ooh. in terms well, of well, or, the, or the thing that you're most proud of oh my three kids you know here's another thing i i'm adopted right so i don't know my natural parents so the only three blood relatives i know on the planet are my three kids think about that like and and I remember at my fiftieth birthday party, I, I talked about that, and all three of my kids started crying and stuff. But it was true. It's like they're the only flesh and blood relatives I know on planet Earth. I was put up to adopt, I put up for adoption as a little baby. I was adopted at three months old, and you know my adoptive parents are cool. I'm not I'm not saying anything against them, but I don't have any blood relatives other than my children. So I, and I think that's another big reason why, you know, I was always so invested in 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 them. And especially my youngest son when he was born, because I was like, you know, not only is he my kid, he's all he's the only true, uh, not I would say true family. My adopted family obviously is still my family. They raised me. I'm not trying to to, to knock that at yeah. all. I'm just saying that it's having that blood relationship with someone, yeah, it's just different. Having that, yeah, it's just a little different. And he was it. Like, and then I had two more kids, obviously. So for me, they are my, you know, they are my everything. When I leave this earth, you know, I'm gonna. I want to be. I want to feel like I left behind three kids that have contributed to society and been good citizens, and you know, done the right things. And you know, my son, like I said, super successful at the University of Portland, um, is now working for Amazon, making tons of money. Uh, he bought a Tesla before I did, little bastard. No, <laughs> uh, he just he just moved to a, a little a, a nice piece of property north north of Seattle that he just bought. I mean, he's doing so well. And I remember when I was younger, he'd be scared about his future. I'd be like, listen, I got you. I got your back. It's my job. My number one goal is to make you more successful than me. That should be every parent's goal. You want your kids to be more successful to you than you are. And um, so I always had his back and everything he did and everything he wanted to do. And then with the two right now, my daughter, you know, as much trouble as my daughter gives me, she's a straight A student. Oh, it ain't that bad. Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. Like my wife was always like, it could be worse. I'm like, I know it could be worse, but damn, she can listen to me like once a week. Can I get one? Can I get one okay dad a week? Just one. And then my son just got uh, just tested uh, for tag and just got accepted into the tag program. So he's obviously a pretty smart young kid too. So, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of those three. And I just want to keep my youngest two out of trouble for a few more years, get them, get them off to college and get them off into life. But yeah, my, my kids are everything. Yeah. So I, I want to hit, hit on the adoption thing because I didn't know that about you. Like, did you ever try to look for your adopted family? Cause I, cause I know that that's become a, you know, a thing, especially late, lately, there's a lot of litig litigation about, open adoptions or closed adoptions and people want to be able to find their family, you know, or doing ancestry.com 23andme, all of that. Have you looked for your family? Are you interested or what? You know, I would say I never have. I would say like every two or three years, it even dawns on me that I was adopted. I forget about it. And, it, and I think that's because my parents told me when I was like three, like literally, I, re- I remember it too. I was like three years old and they explained to me how I wasn't really their kid and I was adopted. I was someone else's kid. And I was just, and maybe, I was, maybe I was four, but it was definitely before we left Chicago. So it was definitely before I was five. So it was like three or four. And I just like, okay, where's my ticker toys? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, but I knew it growing up. And the other thing is they, they, they had me not call them mom and dad. They had, had them call them Jerry and Diane. Uh, which I, they always, I think they regretted that later on. So 
I'm a very independent thinker, as you know, like you call me the contrarian. I was kind of like that as a kid. So things like that didn't really impact me emotionally. I just sort of rolled with it. And then, like I said, I lived in so many different states. You know, my parents moved from Chicago when I was five to the Bay Area. They split up there. My dad moved to Portland. My mom became became a lesbian and her and her lover moved to Arizona. So I was going back and forth from Portland to Arizona. I, I was a biracial kid adopted by biracial parents and now one was gay and they were getting divorced and then my you know and living in different states like it was just my my childhood was just absolute chaos right wow. going back for dude listen to this i lived half i lived half a fifth grade in arizona with my mom then i went to visit my dad for christmas break here in portland and then i was like i'm staying because my mom lived in the middle of nowhere in arizona like the desert area it was just horrible and so I stayed in Portland for half of the grade. Then I went back to Arizona, a small little Mormon town in the middle of nowhere in Arizona for, I was the only black kid in city limits, lived there for sixth grade, then back to Portland for seventh grade, then back to Arizona for eighth grade. And I told my mom, I said, I'll give you ninth grade and I'm done. I'm not graduating from the small little town high school. I'm finishing up in Portland. So after, after my ninth grade year, it was 1984, and then my ninth grade year, I moved back to Portland for good and graduated from high school in Portland. It was just chaos, man. And every dude, get this: any adult that ever knew me as a kid, when they met me later as an adult, they'd be like, "How did you not turn out completely jacked up? <laughs> like, how did you not?" Because they knew my parents, they knew how crazy my childhood was, and I just, you know, I just sort of rolled with the punches. I, I was lucky, I guess. Dude, I I get it. I get it. I understand because my my family is like the my immediate family it is like a is like an episode of blackish like the the people who <laughs> live in my i swear to god it, it's like they it's like it's like kenya bell follow um followed my family around we have and my uh wife is just like rainbow i am like <laughs> you know i i am just like dre just just like dre you know, slightly, you know, say, say things that are sometimes slightly off, off color people just, you know, and, and I want my kids to appreciate the past, appreciate history, appreciate all these things. And then we got, you know, my 13 year old is just like their 13 year old. I'm sorry. is just, just like their oldest son. He's got uh, dreams. He's got goals. Yeah. He's, he's like junior. And then the uh, 19-year-old is just like the oldest one, Zoe, off at college, here sometimes, not sometimes. And then the uh, and then the two, their, theirs are twins, but ours are nine and nine and eight. They're super close, but like they fight sometimes. And then we and then we have a little baby. That it it is our family to a T. But then our family is like modern family because we are a blended family. And my right. and my and my youngest daughter, who's nine, her mom, who I was with for a long time, is now married to another woman who, who was her kindergarten teacher. And wait, it, wait, it, wait, it, wait, wait, what? Yes, <laughs> kindergarten yes. teacher. Yes, bro. This is a it. <laughs> the, the the family dynamic is just it is just absolute chaos because. Because my my, uh, my uh, son, my uh, sons and my daughter have two different moms, so so it so it is just 
it is just absolute chaos. So, and then sometimes they're cool. Sometimes they're not. So like, we just went to my, um, my daughter's gymnastics performance, the younger one. And my son's mom is there. My wife is there. Her mom is there along with her mom's wife. And my parents are there. My nephew, my every, every, everybody's there and everybody's like, oh yeah, hi. Dude, it is the, and so sometimes, so people who don't know when we show up in like a new league or something, everybody's like, I uh, hold up. I, I need, I need like a, like a Venn diagram. A flow chart? Yeah. <laughs> a flow chart. Yeah, to figure out how this, how this goes, like just to figure out how everybody is connected. It is the weirdest thing. And I understand. Right, so I'm looking at a family photo here. So, so your older, your older daughter is from a different mom. Yeah. Yeah. Her, right? her dad then, is actually, um, since you've been covering the Pac-12 for a long time and all that, her, her dad is Eric Turner. Who's her stepdad or her dad? No, no, her dad is Eric Turner, who's play at UCLA. Oh, okay. So, so the older daughter here, Devin. Yep. She's your wife's daughter. Kid from a previous relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and her. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And her. Gotcha. And her dad died when she was ten weeks old. Oh wow. So, so yeah. So there's so there's that. And then when we go to all like the NFL Players Association meetings, all of this stuff, they all know her dad. Because her dad was like the second pick over overall out of UCLA, all this. Um, but you have four total kids or more. There, you have four or five. five, five including the baby. You have five. Yes. So we had, so we have then, five including the baby. Okay, so you have one older kid with a different previous wife, right? And then your wife has a daughter, had a daughter with a previous relationship, and then you you guys have three kids together or four? No. No, three. No, I'm confused. No, see, exactly, exactly. Down, so there's the <laughs> so there's the 19 year old, um, who is my wife's daughter, Devin's daughter. Oh, Devin is the daughter of Denisha. Yep, yep. And right. then okay. there is Damon. Damon, okay. Uh, who he, he is? He's like Junior. Yes, yes. He's from a previous re relationship, and okay. And then my daughter Peyton, who's nine. Is from a uh -huh. different previous relationship. Okay. And then my son Caden, who's eight, has the same mom as Damon. Right. Okay. The thirteen-year-old, and then me and De and then you and Denisha have, have the daughter, have the little little girl. No, no, no. Have the little boy, Roman. That's a, that's a little boy. Okay, yeah, little Roman. boy, the baby. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Have okay. the baby, Roman. Okay. So, so yeah, you do need a flow chart for that, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's great though. Well, I'm telling you, it does. Look, it does look like blackish. Yeah, I'm looking at your family photo right now. And the interesting part <laughs> is that our family um, is my, my my wife is big on vision boards and all of this stuff. And one <clears> year, <throat> she said that that Devin did a vision board. She she was like, "Oh, I want a big family, all of this stuff." And she was like, "Mom, but I want my family to uh, match." And she was like, "What? What do you mean?" She was like, "I want them to make make sure that when we that we're we're all together, everybody looks like they belong together." And mm. ironically, that's kind of how it worked worked out. Because if you look at our pictures, which we post a lot, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's a blended family. Right. No, you're, you're right. 
which is which is one successful thing so that so so that probably tells you what the other moms what what skin tone or nationality that the other moms are too um funny so what what um like staying staying on the you know the faith family all all of that a uh, one and well and food as well which is important to a me one one thing because you talked about earlier how your family kind of unites at dinner time and and all of that and mine is around dinner time but also around the holidays but it's around food mm-hmm. so what does your i i say like your holidays look like with with uh, your family who's cooking who's who's eating where do you guys go being being that you know that you do have an adoptive family but then you have your own family like i would imagine that would be tough right. to be as close as you want to be yeah so we always always go to my in-laws my wife's parents house who live they live like six minutes away from us and they help out with the kids tremendously they are the greatest in-laws ever. Like I would, I would, I would, if there was an in-law of the year category or category somewhere, I would, I would enter them into it. They're just, they're fabulous. They're fabulous to me. They're fabulous to the kids. Obviously they are spectacular. Um, My parents, you know, they, they never really got into holidays. So like, it's not really a a thing with them. I mean, even when I was a kid, it wasn't like that big a deal. I think part of it is because my adopted mom, um, she's Jewish, so Christmas wasn't really a thing for her. I mean, we celebrate, I remember celebrating Hanukkah with her and then, and then Christmas with my dad. But then when my dad remarried, he remarried someone else who was Jewish. So she didn't really care about Christmas that much either. either. Um, so I would, when I was growing up, I'd celebrate Christmas at my, my grandma's house. She passed away like 10 years ago. She was big on Christmas. And then now that I'm married, though, we go to the in-laws for Christmas every year. Christmas and Thanksgiving, that's sort of the place we go. Oh, wow. Okay, so who does, who does the cooking? Are you doing the cooking or are you doing uh, the eating? Grandma, hell no. Nah. I'm doing the football watching and the eating. Oh, man. See, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> Do you cook? Are you cook? I, I don't cook for, for so for the holidays. I am the meat man. I have, oh, okay. I study. It, it's funny because as I got older, so growing, grow, growing up, right? I should always watch my granddad grill and barbecue things and smoke things. Uh, okay. And I mean, he used to smoke everything. One of, one of my favorite things, I know this is going to sound crazy, but he used to put, and my, my drive grew up in Memphis. So you got to understand this. He used to put a big block of bologna on the smoker and would grill up bologna and put barbecue sauce on it. You put that bologna on a, a thick piece of bologna on a two between two pieces of white bread. You got heaven, man. And, and so as I got older, I, I started, I got me a smoker, all these things and really started really studying. So I, I don't, I barbecue a lot. I smoke a lot of meat, um, but I am scientist with it. Like I brine my meat. I I use temperature. I, I use th- thermometers. I use things to keep my smoker at the proper temperature. I use a lot of technology in it. And it was funny because that's not how I was taught. They were like, oh, you can tell it's done when it's this and that. And now I would not cook a piece of meat without a thermometer. It's not happening. <laughs> well, you're far more advanced than I am. I, you know, so 
like I said, I, I knew how to cook for myself when I was a child because my parents were sort of that way, like do for yourself. And I'll be honest with you, we have the traditional gender roles in my family, but my wife loves to cook and she doesn't trust me in the kitchen. And I think I may have subconsciously maneuvered myself that way to like act in the kitchen in the ways where she wouldn't trust me. So she would do all the cooking, but she does 90% of the cooking. Now, if I'm home with the kids and she's not there, I, I will cook lunch for them. Box macaroni and cheese. Oh, I've been no. known to whip up some f- <laughs> oh. <laughs> or or sandwiches, but I will make some. I, I will make breakfast for them. I will make some French toast or pancakes, bacon and eggs, things like that for breakfast if if that the opportunity rises. And then for dinner, if she's not going to be home for whatever reason, she'll leave something, or there'll be some kind of leftover, or we'll just go out. <laughs> oh man, see, but- <laughs> you're so disappointed. Oh, so disappointed. <laughs> See, I do a lot of. The, I would probably say I do seventy percent of the cooking at my at my house. But I love to cook. Nice. And and two, I'm very particular about the food I eat. And my and my wife is like, listen, listen. If you want me to cook cook more, like you like you have to, you know, encourage me all of this stuff because she's been hugely successful in 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 her business. Right? She's a a, a real estate broker. Anybody out here that sells stuff in California knows know, knows who she is, a real estate broker and investor. So she's been in a male-dominated field, made a ton of money, all these things. So like she was more focused on work than than a lot of the of the domestic things. Like so right. so she is, and it's so funny to see her really getting into that over the last couple of years and really being like. Hold up, let me take care of my 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 my, my man, my, my family, cook for everybody, all these things is really dope to uh see. But I but when it comes to, you know, like I don't want to cook the whole meal. I wanna cook like I I'll cook dinner, but when it comes to like big people coming over, like we'll we'll have for Thanksgiving, we had like 40 people over. So I don't want to cook the whole meal. I just want to cook the two turkeys that I had to cook. And and then uh, I'm, I make my own cranberry sauce. And I think that's all I did was the turkeys and the cranberry sauce. But but the turkeys take three days of preparation because I got to brine them and make make the brine, get that set up, keep putting the ice in it, all these things as well. So, you know, I, I put a lot of time, effort and and love into the food. Well, I put a time a lot of time and effort and love into the cereal I pour. <laughs> <laughs> nah, you got me beat on that, man. So the thing is, I can cook. Like if I was if I was single, when I when I was single, I would cook for myself. Like I said, I was raised in a way where I knew how to fend for myself. But it's just the way it works out. And my wife can cook her butt off, and it's just how need. we've settled into those roles. So you got what you needed. I got yeah. I mean, just it works out for me. She doesn't mind cooking. She actually prefers to cook because, like I said, she doesn't trust me. Um, but uh, well, the other thing too is she likes to control the mess as she cooks. She's like, when it, she's like, I always know what you and the kids had to eat when I get home because it's all over the cabinets and the counters and the floor. Right, that's funny. <laughs> so, Aaron, man, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. Get us getting to know you. Not just, not just, you know, Aaron Fentress and what he and what he thinks about the Ducks, what he thinks about the Seahawks. You know, really getting a chance to know you, giving us your gems about 
about fatherhood and life and about your past being adopted, man, we are going to have to explore this much deeper later, man. Not <laughs> like everybody knows you as a, I, I, I would say that you like to look at yourself as a, as an honesty broker, right? As a, I'm all about the truth, man. Fairness and the truth. So, and, but I, I always look at that as code name for, for I'm a contrarian. That code code name for I go against the grain, like because usually people who are following the grain are not following the truth. So, as a, <laughs> as well, well as as somebody who covers sports and all of this, I mean, how much of this is actually, you know, brokering the uh, truth where sometimes you have to keep secrets? Explain. Like when when you talk to a family, when you talk to a coach, like how much of that is on the record, off the record, and how much of it do you have to keep a secret? Let, let's put it this way: there have been times on Twitter when I've had arguments with fans who thought I was an idiot about something when I literally had gotten that information off the record from people at Oregon. <laughs> probably, probably the funniest one ever was uh, when there was something I can't remember what it was about Mariota. And I was literally texting with his mom about it while people were calling me a liar and saying I didn't know what I was talking about. And Mariota's mom saw the tweets and saw my interactions. And she's just like, don't tell him you're talking to me. I'm like, don't worry, I'm not going to. But it was just funny. Like, I don't know how many times in my life that's happened where I've been told that my points of view are just totally whack when I'm literally getting the information from places that they would respect. So it's, it's just bizarre. Well, that 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 goes to when you see the Adam Schefters, when you see the, you know, the Bruce Feldman's, like the guys who have made it fully national in terms of, of, you know, being in being an insider, whether it's NFL, college football, or whatever. Like, what is that life like? Are you always waiting on the phone to ring? Are you calling people? Like how did how did those negotiations work? Because I always wonder. Because I don't break news. Because I'm like, how do you get in with so many people to be able to break news? Yeah, at that at that level, those guys are in with GMs and agents who want the biggest splash for the news to get out. So, you know, it's ninety percent of the time. Whenever you see any of those guys tweet something, they got it straight from the GM. So they're going to get it first. So if a GM's in negotiations with someone and they they finalize a deal, the GM can just text, you know one of the people that they want to break it and they're going to break it right away. And so those guys are just extremely plugged in at that level. And there's a big splash factor for having those guys break it. Um, you know, as far as building sources, you know, you, you want to build trust with people. You want people to trust that you're uh, not going to try and sensationalize things that you're not um, to burn people that you can be trusted with information um, and that, you know, you're someone who's going to present the positive and the negative, like, you know, be someone who's honest. And, and the best relationships I've had with people who were sources were people who respected my job. They understood it was my job not to be a Ducks cheerleader. It was my job to report what I saw as the truth. And then when they disagreed with me about something, they would tell me they disagree with me. I would say, well, state your case. And if they say their case, then I might tweak my point of view on something, you know, that, that, I, that I was referring to before or write something a little bit differently. And if I disagree with them, I say, nah, I disagree, this, this, and this. And they would just respect my opinion, although they would disagree. No, those are the kind of relationships you want to build with people that mutual respect. See, I've had a couple of times where like on at the Rose Bowl, 
I was standing, I was walking down the tunnel down to the field next to Larry Scott. And he kind of looked at me because he seen me at Pac-12 Media Day before I've talked to him. And I don't know how much he is on social media, but if he follows the Unafraid Show, if he follows follows me, he probably sees some unflattering tweets or some unflattering things sometimes. So I, I, I find it a little bit awkward, but it doesn't bother me. You know what I mean? Like Because I, I always try to come from things from a place of truth and honesty and not try to attack people's character and attack the things that they did instead. Right. I agree. So did, has, has there ever been a time where you were around <coughs> somebody and you wrote something or you said something on TV and, and it was uh, uncomfortable when you saw? Um, yeah, there's, there's been a few of those times. And what I, my policy is this, I don't say anything or write anything that I wouldn't say to that person. That's my fault. Would I would I say this to the person? If I, if I'm if I'm sitting across from that person, would I say this at the beginning of the year? I I wrote Crystal Baldi's approved that he can get his team ready to close out important key games because so far he hadn't. I mean, he, I mean they won the Red Box Bowl, I guess, yeah. But last year, 2018, after beating Washington, they fell apart a little bit. Now, if I was sitting right across from Crystal Ball, which I have done, I've done one-on-one interviews with him for an hour for TV. I would I would say that to him. You need to prove this. I would feel comfortable saying that to him. Um, same thing with Taggart. Taggart, I wrote, you know, Taggart, you know, people were calling him overrated uh, a couple years ago. Remember he was voted the most overrated coach in the nation? Yep. I wrote, I wrote, well, they're not wrong because he's elevated super quickly and he's yet to win a conference title or a bowl game, right? So he's yet to prove anything because he's, but part of that because he hadn't been anywhere long enough, right? Well, I sat in the man's living room down in Tallahassee and said the exact same thing to him. Right. So I don't write it or say it unless I would feel comfortable saying it to the person and then feel comfortable taking the heat backwards. So I've never been in a situation where I felt uncomfortable because I felt like if they're going to come at me with it. I'm ready. I, I'm going to be able to back up what I said and I can handle it. I think that's just part of the job. But no one's really come at me that much. Um, I think I had one kid a long time ago whose parents were mad at me for an article I wrote because in the article I had Aliotti saying something critical about the player. And I'm like, but that was part of the story because it was about his redemption of overcoming the things Aliotti was critical about. Yeah. And they were like, well, we didn't know you were going to put anything negative in it. I'm going, I'm telling the story, and the story includes negativity of sports. He didn't play well here. He's playing well now. And they were mad at me, wouldn't speak to that's me. Actually, <laughs> and I just like, that's actually a good <laughs> arc for a story, is a story of redemption. Like, people like that. Right, exactly. And she was pissed. This mom was pissed. She was like, don't ever try and contact us ever again for some kind of cheap headline. And I'm thinking to myself, well, A, he's a senior with three games left, so I'm probably never going to contact you again. And two... <laughs> I'm standing by, like, I'm, I'm totally standing by my article. And so then I, I, I ran down the player, and uh, I can't remember who the player's name was. It was so long ago. I think it was 2004. And, uh, and I said, so you guys were unhappy with that story? And they're like, yeah, my parents just felt like this. I go, I go but dude, like, Aliotti said this. And I go, you and I talked about what Aliotti, like, the, the uh, things you had to work on. So, like, I don't understand. He goes, yeah. He goes, they were just kind of upset about it. They, they didn't expect it to have anything like that in it. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what to tell you. Sorry. Yeah. And that was that. Yeah, I'm sorry, but not sorry. It was a great article. What What are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. Um, so when, so for young people coming in the game of, of sports journalism, whether they want to be a broadcaster and opinionist, what advice do you have for them to like for best journalistic practices, creating their own voice or whatever it is that you have to do to get in that world? 
Let the facts and data lead you to an opinion. Don't formulate an opinion and then only chase down and refer to the facts that support your opinion while ignoring stuff that goes against your narrative. Like I always believe you can tell what someone's agenda is by the facts they omit, right? So if you try and say, okay, well, I believe X, Y, Z, but yet there's 10 pieces of evidence out there that destroy your theory on X, Y, Z, and you just ignore and pretend they don't exist, you've obviously decided you want X, Y, Z to be the truth. And that it doesn't matter if it is the truth or not, you want that to be the narrative. Don't be that person. There's too much of that out there. I see it all the time. It drives me bananas where people will say things and it's like, but you're ignoring something right in your face. Like, how can you ignore that? It's right there. Don't be that. It's way, it's way too prevalent in our society. Did you see the thing the other day with, uh, with uh, Diggs from the Vikings? Do, he was doing something and someone had a picture of it and it made it look like he was doing it in Sean Payton's face after the game. Yeah. And then, and, then, and then you see the video and the guy, I can't remember what he was doing, but he was doing something physical. And then you notice that he was doing it and then saw Peyton and stopped doing it and shook Peyton's hand and gave him a hug. So he wasn't doing it at Peyton at all. But yet people put it out there that he was doing it at Peyton and disrespecting him. That kind of crap. Like, <clears throat> I don't know how people get away with that nonsense, but that stuff has to go away. And it's happening way too many places that used to be respectable. So that's the first thing I would say. Seek information that, seek the information, excuse me, Formulate your opinion, formulate the narrative you're chasing based on reported facts, not your agenda. See, but the problem with that BS, though, Eric, is just that that's what sells. Like, and that's like, sad. People are about clickbait, and and they want to see the it the sensationalized thing. I mean, we get that when we watch the news, when we watch sports, when we watch headlines, any of that. They show what they show the car crash first. They're not going to show the good feel good story. It's got to be the car crash, the fire, the death, the whatever it is that is going to create fear or it's going to create outrage. That's where the headlines are. I, I'm not disagreeing with so, you. That's sad. And, so and, and, and there's a whole it, generation. So but is, is, is that a see here the, the way I look at it, because I refuse to do that. So I'm like, I because I don't think that's a long term sustainable model. I think that right. that you are, you know, that you will lend yourself to who the hot person is, as opposed to creating your own voice, creating your own following, all of those things, which translate and have long term earning potential. No, I I agree, and. It's, it's a catch-22 because a lot of times, well, first of all, the younger generation of journalists have grown up primarily in the internet age. So they've seen how people use the internet and, and use clickbait and things like that. And then how you have now you have a lot of websites that cover teams as fans, not objective journalists, which sort of clouds um, the, the perception of what journalism is supposed to be. And so you get caught up in that. You want to chase clicks. What are your numbers? You always hear people talking about their numbers, my numbers, my numbers. Okay, well, did the story suck or not? Was it good or not? Like, was it a good story, but didn't people didn't read it? Or was it a crap story, but you got 100,000 page views? And that's what's sad about it. So, yes, if you're young, you're coming out, you might end up in a job where you have to chase clicks. But try to do your best to at least do so with some integrity, because that's what, as you move up the chain, that's what's going to reflect best on you as a journalist. What was your integrity like during the climb? And that's why I just fear sometimes where people are just like, I saw something the other day. Uh, what was it? It was something just stupid where it was like, you know, oh, Jonathan Stewart. Could Jonathan Stewart be the, go to the Seahawks? 
Well, no, but that was the headline to get people to click on it. It was like, he's not going anywhere near Seahawks. He's done. He's but done. I put that headline. The yeah. Rose Bowl. He's cooked, dude. He yeah. had no desire to, no desire to right. do and, that. And the person who posted that knew Jonathan Stewart was done, and he wrote in the article that Jonathan Stewart's probably not going to go to the Seahawks. But the headline's up there to be, hey, come click on me to find out something you already know, to chase, to chase numbers. And if they got good numbers, that's all they care about. <laughs> it's just... It's sad, but you know, that's the state of the business. Just try and if you have to navigate through those waters, try and maintain your integrity along the way. So, and when you, when, when you do want to broker truth, broker honesty, and you have to say some hard things, the uh, comment section gets a little dicey sometimes. And it's always funny to me because I went on a, uh, a Florida Gators podcast earlier in the year. Oh my God, they, it was fl a flame broiler <laughs> and their <laughs> people came after me and they were like, oh, aha, uh -huh. we, we, we ratioed him. His, his comments are a dumpster fire. That'll let him know not to mess with us again. And I'm like, it's actually the complete opposite. First of all, I don't care if, if you blow up my, my comments, who cares? Like, like I've, they probably have no idea how many people like if you write stuff or do videos or anything, how many comments that you get on a daily basis anyway. So to like 10 X that is not really that difficult because you can filter them, them out. You can filter the verify people. You can filter the people right. that you talk to regularly. Like it's, it's not that big of a deal. Right. And you know that if people are blowing you up and then saying, ha ha, he won't mess with us again, you know that they know they're full of crap. They're just they're just they're being they're trolling. They're just spewing nonsense because they're trying to get under your skin and they're trying to come at you. And one of the things that always amazes me, and I always forget this, is just how parts of our society are just truly ignorant and uneducated about certain aspects of life. Like they just are. They don't understand how education works. They don't understand how government works. They don't understand how crime investigation works. And I take some of these things for granted because I covered them for a major newspaper. So I, I got an education on how school districts function and how government works and how crime works, how crime is investigated, uh, those kind of things. So my perception of different things in the world is different than the average person. So I'll tweet something or whatever that I think is completely innocuous based on my experience and knowledge. And people will come at me from like 80 different directions and they have no clue what they're talking about. Like I, could, I would completely annihilate them in any type of debate about this because they don't know what they're talking about, but they want to just attack to attack. And then they start labeling you and they start creating a narrative about you and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, dude, you are completely ignorant and clueless. And that's why this year I, I, I made a, a news resolution, man. I'm not even going to engage. I'm blocking and I'm muting. And through the first three days, I blocked and muted like 30 people. And they were just absolutely clueless, ignorant, uneducated human beings. And I will not miss them. See, see me, I, I, I take the opposite approach. Un, un, unless you call me the the N-word, it's it's hard to get blocked from me. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind the people in the comments and the people. I, I laugh at them and I like to screenshot the comments and send them in group chats. <laughs> That's where I get... If, my if joy. they're following me, if they're following me, I mute them so that I keep the follow. And then they, when they're screaming at me, they're doing it into the dark. They have no idea. I'm just completely ignoring them. If they don't follow me and they come at me just really sideways, stupid, where I know they're just trying to just be jackasses, then I just block them. Just like, just get rid of them. Let them know. To me, that lets them know I ain't got time for your foolishness. Be gone. Yeah. You don't exist to me. Yeah. See, I, I am, 
I don't mind. It, see, I I look at it like fans cheering in a in in a stadium, like that. Some people are going to be booing you. Some people are going to be cheering you. I don't mind the boos and I don't mind the cheers. But the the thing I always say is, don't say anything to me that you wouldn't say to my face. Hundred percent. Like 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 I live by the you know like the meet me in Temecula rule. <laughs> don't uh, that 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 was a thing that happened out out here in Cali where two dudes. It was during some holiday break, might have been Thanksgiving, Christmas break, something like that. These two dudes got in an argument about Kobe Bryant and his greatness. And they ended up, one guy ended up driving from like Long Beach to Temecula, which is like two hours to fight a dude over an argument over Kobe Bryant. So, and and, <laughs> and it turned left. It turned into him calling them all type of bitches and all time. I mean, just, it turned Jeez. real disrespectful. And I look at things, I'm like, listen, just, just keep it to a level. You can boo, you can cheer, even call me an idiot, whatever it is that you want to call me. But just there are certain lines that you should stay within. And if you violate those, then you have stepped so far out of the box. I don't have a problem blocking people like that. You come at my that's you that's come what, at that's family, what I'm saying. You come yeah. at my wife. You come at my, my my kids. Any of that shit. Not not only that, I might call the police on you too. I I, <laughs> I don't play these games like. I used to, you know, have that tough guy. You know, I, I'll, I'll handle this now. Nah, you, 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 you ain't suing me in my, in my house, homeboy. I'll call the police on right. you. <laughs> yeah, I've never, ever had a duck fan come up to me and say something derogatory or sideways. I had one once in a suite um, say that. Uh, he said uh, something like, you're too negative about the Ducks. And my wife's coming. And she's going to be all over you. And I'm like, bring it. And, his, and the wife showed up. She saw me. And she was like, oh, yeah, I got a bone to pick with you. I'm like, well, pick it. And so we ended up having a nice conversation. And then by the time we were done, I had won them over because I basically said, look, I'm not a Duck fan. You are. It's my job to be objective. And they they got it. That's the only time ever. So I know whatever Duck fans don't like me when they see me, they're not saying anything to me. But I get a ton of Duck fans who come up to me all the time and, and and thank me for my objectivity. Yeah. When I was all talking ducks for six years, it's like, thanks for being the one, only one on the show who would say what we're thinking. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thanks dude, for not being a homer. Dude, I, re I, re I remember when, um, and I know that we've been longstanding disagreeing about Mark, about Mark Helfrich being fired and the whole staff being, being fired or whatever. Right. So uh, Joey Harrington, me and me and Joey didn't didn't agree at all. He was a little bit uh, upset because I was like, yo, yes, it's time to clean house. I love these coaches, but that was my opinion on it. And I had facts yeah. and opinions that I believed that that supported my my opinion on the situation. And and Joey, I, I mean, and I'm a Ducks fan. And I love those coaches. Like I still talk to Coach Campbell, Coach Osmore. Just saw Coach Bellotti. Well, he 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 wasn't part of the firing, but uh, right. Coach Coach Greatwood, all these dudes, see them all, love them. But that didn't stop me from. I I felt like being objective in the situation, and Joey was just so upset with me, and I was just like, "Yo, you are entitled to feel a different way." But the fact that you can't even consider this as a possibility is just it, it like, it, you know, 
it it's almost uncomfortable for people a lot a lot of times when it comes to change and particularly i i didn't even think about it like this until right this second with with joey where i was uh, i couldn't understand why he was so upset but now that i think about it i'm like hold up he's an oregon kid who grew up in portland and went went to central catholic and grew up so his relationship with the ducks is even different than mine even though we both love them it's a different love and i think that that that's where it is with fans where you have the new duck fans versus the old ones yeah and i think joey's perspective was that you know he remembers the dark times as a fan living in the state and where the program was and and who the coaches were that helped grind through those years and bring the program to where it, you know, attained, you know, never before uh, winning ways in, in, the, in the history of the program. And so for his perspective was that there's a lot of new age fans who've come along recently who uh, think they've been old school fans and they're not, they don't get the history. And that, that sort of led to this whole idea that, Oh, we had a bad season. Let's just fire everybody. And that, and that offended him. And quite frankly, it offended me too. And I'm not a Doug fan at all. Um, so I, I kind of, that's where I thought always felt joy was coming from. Like these were the people who helped build this thing. Let's just not blow them up for a bunch of guys who never gave Oregon a second thought. And let's face it, the staff right now and the staff under Taggart, those guys never gave Oregon a second thought ever. And you got rid of the guys who had, so that's what bothered joy. Yeah. And, and, and truthfully it does suck. Right. But I, I would, I would say, if you look at the if you look at college programs or anything else like a corporation like a business sometimes the person who starts that business and grows it is not always that same person that needs to usher it into the next level or the next dimension um i'm reading a book right now called the hard thing about hard things by um by horowitz and He's a, a successful CEO of these huge companies. And he talks about that there's a difference between wartime CEOs, peacetime CEOs, people who grow things, all of that stuff. So I look at things more from a business perspective. And just because you were a, like, you grew a business, you started a business, sometimes it takes somebody else to usher it into the next dimension i i'm and 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 i'm not saying that they couldn't have that someone else couldn't have done it but i'm saying that at that point in time that i believe that there needed to be a change because that's the way i look at it right no and i hear and i hear that and that's and that's fair and again you know i <laughs> the whole me and helpers thing is just grown to preposterous levels sometimes it's just amusing to me people still think he and i were like tight like i have zero relationship with mark helpridge um, but my thing was, and again, I, I never, I never said, let them be coaches forever. You know, they can go four and eight for 10 straight years. My thing was they deserved a chance to turn it around at the next year. They would have stuck, stunk again, by all means fire them, but they deserved a chance to do so given what they had all, uh, accomplished. And I think when you look two years out, they've had three recruiting classes come in there and you still had 15 guys that recruited under Helfrich that were starters or impact players on this team that just won uh the Pac-12 and the Rose Bowl and the two MVPs were who recruited them oh yeah the previous staff so I think there's plenty of evidence that they would have turned things around at the same time and I said this at the time I believe that whoever took over that 2016 roster with that O-line and that quarterback we're gonna have a chance to win I think Tiger would have won and I and I when Chris Ball took it over I was like well Chris Ball should win if he doesn't win the next two years something's wrong with him 
and he got it done. See, I would. I see you already know. Don't do uh, it. I'm gonna argue. Don't do the it. Opposite. Don't do it. However, don't do how, it. However, <laughs> however, there has never been any. I well, I should I should say I have never ever ever been critical of Mark Helfrich's eye for talent because he has been able to like when when you look at the kids who are there now for the if you go three recruiting cycles back he found kids like like he found some gems in the in in amongst those classes and so like you can't knock that and then you can't knock what what Willie Taggart did and what he brought to the program was probably it was a crucial key to uh uh Mario Cristobal's success and any subsequent uh Oregon coaches success how long did people say that they did not believe that you could recruit top 10 top 5 number 1 classes to Eugene because of geography and Willie Taggart aside from what anybody wants to say they think about him he came in there with an attitude like why not and then show proved that it could be done because because had he not left he would have signed the number one class in the country or 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 number two class and that would have been unprecedented they already signed a number seven class the year after right so you're like so he brought something very valuable. So it always confuses me with a fan. See, 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 I have a different reason for my kind of bad taste that he left in my mouth. And, and mm-hmm. that was over a lie. So to me personally. <laughs> right. Which, You're making it personal. Yeah. So it, it's not about him leaving the Ducks, anything like that, because I don't begrudge coaches for doing what's best for them. I feel like we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to have a, a have a job that uh, be, to be gainfully employed to whether it's being an entrepreneur, working for somebody, um to be financially stable and 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 have some excess d- d- depending on what your level of excess that you would like and to be in a geographically desirable place and to and to have a happy, stable home life. I, I believe that everybody wants that. So when coaches Correct. try to achieve that, I don't mind. I just don't like when the when the when they try to hold players to a different standard than they hold uh than they hold the coaches to. But that's okay, but that's a different debate. That's that's you know, hate the player, hate the game, right? I mean, it's just if if players were allowed to just leave willy nilly, it would be absolute chaos. Like you you could you couldn't it couldn't function as the way the way it does if players were allowed to do that. Teams could just completely fall off the map and become division two teams overnight. You have to have something in place that makes it difficult for kids to just bounce. Yeah. At a moment's notice, or you're going to really destroy the structure of college football. I think See, that's I just think a fact. You should get one one scot free transfer, and then and then after that, you got to sit out two years the next time. It's hot. It's like well, maybe it's like, it, it's hard like to build a program that way. And, I mean, because they they can hop in the transfer portal now. I just don't like the idea that the coach like like with chris chris peterson but that's did different at what, that's different you know what i'm saying what 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 uh, chris peterson did with the with the quarterback who transferred to ucla he did not sign off on 
him being able to allow the Pac-12 and the NCAA to determine whether he would be immediately eligible. He didn't do that. He didn't even give them a chance to decide. But then he can up and retire. He could have taken a new job when, whenever. So I don't mind players being able to transfer one time because sometimes when you're 18, 19 years old, you may sign with the wrong place. Like you thought that it was going to be something that you didn't get. And so I, I under, understand that. But when you make it a, a habit, that's why I say you get a free one. Second time, mandatory sit out at least one one year. Maybe maybe two. You get one freebie. Then after that, you're, you're on your own, JoJo. I think if you allow players to do that, given how sensitive players are to playing time, if I'm not playing right away, it would just be absolute chaos. I think I don't. I think it would be really, really difficult to build a program that way. I will say this, though. I think if there's a mutually agreed upon transfer, then the kids should have to sit out. So if you're Oregon, Why the say Oregon, get, get to decide where <clears throat> you transfer to. Because you're because you're protect. Okay, you're protecting. It's not about the coach. You're protecting the university and its football program from being decimated by 10 players being disgruntled because they're immature. I mean, it, it could definitely happen. Look like, at the Oregon just, softball team. The whole Oregon softball team just transferred to yeah, Texas. There's, there's a great example. Look what that did to that to the Oregon program. That right there is just ridiculous. You have to be able to protect they yourself against that or your program's going to get screwed. Money. They should have gave Why well, know as okay. money. But that's beside the point. The point is, is that the players were able to leave and they bailed and they bailed. If you had that in football, it would, it would just be chaos. It would be really, really difficult to even build a program that way because it would just be chaos. The way parents are, the way these kids are, their egos. Are you kidding me? The kids would be transferring left and right. All my starting, I'm leaving there. Yeah, but the problem it would just is be like, football, it would just be insane. In, in football, you can't really do it because of the scholarship limit uh, limitation. So like it, so so the kids wouldn't even be able to transfer at the, at that level. I mean, and th- think about it in a year and a half. Good enough players would come yeah, on. But Good enough players would find a place to go. In a year and a half of the transfer portal, it's already been like almost fifteen. 1,500 kids that have been in it already. Who's right now? Imagine if you imagine the kids would have to sit off, sitting out a year. Imagine how it would be in that in that portal. I think it, 15,000. Uh, 15,000. Like 12,000 in general. Uh, I would, I, <laughs> and they'd all be and they all be in it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Aaron, man, I I appreciate everything. I appreciate your time, brother. And you know, we will continue to kick the tires on the ducks continue to tick kick the tires on everything that you are doing and uh i, I appreciate it man hey i appreciate you having me on it's always a good time rapping with you let's do it again soon yes sir all right peace out